Don't play anymore. Okay. God, that's old. It's old. It's old. We're old. <laughs> the oldness. The omnipresent oldness. <laughs> Surrounded. I was just looking at a website called Vanishing Seattle. Yeah, it was... Uh... Yeah. Just the number of businesses and things like that that are closing down. And also, they, they do some good work because it's they're exposing the fact that the uh, uh, Seattle Policeman's Fund is supported by business owners and, ah. real, and real estate moguls and things like that. It's completely unregulated money that's flowing into the Seattle Police Department that's oh separate from the city budget. And it's often used to buy equipment and things like that. And it's, you know. Are we in the cold open here? This is the cold open. Okay. <laughs> this is where we, you know, we can decide how much of the cold open to include or not. That's what I always kind of. All of it. All of it. Every <laughs> single second of it. Every single second. All the way up to and including. It's 8.43 a.m. Saturday, July the 18th. I'm Bill. I'm Diane. It's the Bill and Diane Show. I got myself a cup of coffee here, and I'm going to take me a sip. What's the... What's the... I'm going to go... Ah, ham and eggs. Anyway. A... Yeah. Old, old. The institutions, yeah, the, the businesses that are closing in the... I don't know, man. I don't know. Seattle certainly doesn't look like it did in 1984 when I got here. Or in the 70s when I would visit from Tacoma. Of course, no. Tacoma doesn't look the same either. Well, when I was working at... Perkins Coie Stone Olson and Williams. Perkins Coie Stone Olson and Williams. On Fourth and Union. This is Diana. How may I help you? Yes, eighteenth floor reception. Oh, eighteenth floor reception. That was the beginning of my career in the wonderful world of work. Yes. Um, when I was working down there, it looked totally different. Then when we go downtown now, right. I don't know where the heck I am yeah. at any given point. Yeah. I remember when I worked at 4th and Pine, uh, that was, there was just this neighborhoody feel about the place. There was like a, yeah. you know, like a six block radius around that went down to the market and then, you know, kind of went down, down the past a, a left past and right the, turn. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Past the Woolworths, was it Woolworths? Yes. Yeah, the Woolworths that still had the the, the soda fountain, and uh, there were sandwich shops and stuff like that, and the Fidelity Lane. There was the piano store there, and yeah, you know, I don't know. It just had a very and the, with the with the with the monorail track ending right there outside of Nordstrom, right next to the right next to the Bartel old Bartel Drug Building where I worked, and and. Uh, I don't know. It just had a real neighborhoody kind of feel to it. You feel like you saw the same people every day, and it was kind of like, "Hey, how you doing?" kind of thing. And you know, I don't know. That doesn't feel like it's there anymore. If yes, downtown is way much, way more of a destination unless you live in one of the high-rise, you know, billionaire uh, condos down there. You know. We don't, Bill. <laughs> don't we, Diane? Boy, I could have sworn that we did. <laughs> God, I had the weirdest dream this morning. Right before I woke up, I just got out of bed and I was just like, ah! ah eh. It was exhausting. I felt like I needed a nap immediately. It's this weird dream where I had this job 
I was supposed to be showing up for my first day. I couldn't find a job. I couldn't remember where I parked my car. There was I was on water for part of it, and I was like, there was these floating little platforms on the water, and I was having to jump jump from one platform to another platform. And at one point, I fell down. I was carrying a bundle of clothes or some some kind that was probably with the work clothes that I was going to change into when I got there. And, pulling the wet clothing up onto the little platform out of the water and, you know, trying to squeeze the water out, trying to find my way. At one point I met a guy who I was working, who worked there and we were walking together, but somehow we got split up. And then that's when I ended up in the water place. And I was, at one point I took a wrong turn and I was going down this steep, this hugely steep, it was like a roller coaster downhill, but it was like sand in my feet. And so I was like going down and trying to stay on my feet and stuff like that. And I think I was on the phone to you at one point saying, I can't find my, well, go, you should go back, retrace your step. I, I can't go back. I'm on a place right now. I can't go back. You know, the thing, it was just absolutely chaotic dream. It was just so oh, weird. No. Yeah. Anyway. So I'm gonna have to take a nap right after the show. Yes, I understand. It was the Sometimes most dreams, sir. Bit of sleep I've had in quite some time. There are very, it's <laughs> very frequent that I wake up from a dream and think, oh man, good, I'm not in that place. You know, anymore. I have, I find that I have some very vivid dreams after you get up. I've been awake. You get up, and I'm gonna, I'm just gonna, I just, I'm just gonna turn on my side and see if I go back to sleep because I, I always feel like I could use more sleep than I get. Yeah. So I figure I'll just turn on my left side and and I'll just lay here and see what happens, you know. And usually I'll go back to sleep for another half an hour or so. And I did this morning. And, and, and then you had this that dream. Exhausting dream. So, yeah. Well, while you were having this exhausting dream, I was having a wonderful conversation with my with brother. Yeah, with Gary, yeah. It was truly luxurious. A luxurious convo with the bro. Yeah. Nice. Well, especially, you know, as I was talking and I, that had something to do with my choice of which album to cover today, too, from our formative album days, because oh um, I was just thinking how much my brother has influenced my thoughts over my lifetime. And um, because so oftentimes when I'm saying something to him, I realize that it's almost like, well, of course, I think this way because you thought this way, and yeah, you we know, thought this and way together. we thought our, this way together. We our, came up with this worldview. Evolved into the same to the same place. Exactly. Yeah. I feel that way with my sister a lot of times too. Yeah. And a lot of it is around musical things, and you know, several of the, my most influential albums are albums that were actually her albums that I appropriated. Oh yeah, point. well, the one we're going to cover right. today that's was Gary's I album. I know that that's true. So. But it's it's so interesting to have this conversation with him because he's in Portland, um, which is my birth town and hometown in my mind. There's some weird ass shit. And going there's on some down there right weird now. ass shit going on there. <laughs> Sorry. Didn't mean to lead you into that. No. Uh, that's not my talk, term, did you, did but you talk, I will Did you agree. talk about it? Yeah, yeah. we did talk about it. Yeah. And I was thinking, wow, this is just because uh, I felt offended for Portland, even though I don't live there, because it is sort of my hometown in my mind. And so, um, but we talked about a whole variety of topics. But one of the things I was talking to him about was uh, my continuing uh, reading of God Bless You, Mr. Gro- Rosewater, uh, which has been quite a phenomenal book to be reading during this time. And 
makes me realize how long these circumstances of inequity of mm. wealth have mm. been going on. Inequity of many things, yeah. Well, inequity yeah. of many things. Yeah. And one of the things I love about Vonnegut that I was telling Gary about this morning is that he he basically just it's like he paints a picture in front of you. He has all these characters, he has the the story going on. And he's showing you how ridiculous everything is without saying it's ridiculous. He's just he's just stating it sort of matter of factly and and letting you say that is ridiculous, you know. But one of the the passages that I got to was that there's this maid who used to be in in an orphanage. And the reason why she's in domestic service is because it's part of the orphanage's philosophy that you go out in the world uh, after you have been in the orphanage and you are first installed in a domestic service uh, occupation so that you can get a taste for the finer things in life is the way it was put so she writes she's writing a letter to the head of the orphanage who she had a great deal of affection for and she's telling him that she's not feeling at home in this situation and that she thinks that the woman who, the very wealthy woman who is uh, employing her doesn't like her. And she said, I never said anything disrespectful, but she always thinks I'm disrespectful because she could see it in my eyes. And then she would talk about some circumstance, for example, in she gave the, the example of a story where the woman was playing Beethoven at a 78 RPM on the records. And she was saying, it was so annoying. And I finally said, what is that music? And she said, oh, it's Beethoven. Let me introduce you to Beethoven. And the maid says, well, I, we listen to Beethoven all the time and it didn't sound like that. And then she realized that the woman was playing it on the wrong speed. And so she told the woman and the woman was... Um, offended and then she said I didn't say anything except that but she she must have sensed that I thought she was stupid for doing that and then the the final thing she said was that um, that the woman would had taken her out to view a sunset and the woman so the maid said oh it's beautiful sunset you know and the woman was dissatisfied the wealthy woman was dissatisfied with her answer and so the maid kept trying to think what does she want from me what why is she dissatisfied and and finally she said thank you very much and the woman was satisfied and the maid said so since that time I've thanked her for the ocean for the constitution for you know all these (laughs) and she said that that seemed to satisfy this wealthy woman and for some reason that just rang so true in my head for these days you know i am providing it's sort of like i have become god because i am wealthy so anyway it's been a very interesting book to read during this particular time and i've understood it so much more than i would have in my youth yeah i think this is a time of great reframing um, a lot of things that we, a lot of 
things that we are used to in our lives and have perceived in one particular kind of way in our lives are now kind of opening up into a different, uh, there's another, like another, another window being opened into it so that you see another layer of meaning, um, or can attach another layer of meaning to a lot of things that, that have been in stasis of one kind or another for a lot of, uh, the period of our life, you know. Yeah. Just listening to music and and uh, noticing things in the news, even and stuff like that, it just it's like things make more sense in a way now. But it's a disturbing sense that they make. Yeah, you know, it's disturbing and it's uh, and it's uh, frightening, but it's also illuminating and in some ways empowering. You know, I would agree with that statement wholeheartedly. Yeah. I would say that in a lot of ways that I have just, uh, it's, for me, it's like the craziness is magnified right now. That the crazy was always there, but you didn't really notice it. Right, and then you also have some sense, okay, you know, we've kind of been asleep. We've kind of been semi-conscious for a a long time, and, and wow. So you have, there's a, you know, you definitely... It's a personalized uh, set of sensations because you recognize in yourself the parts that have been either anesthetized by something, uh, you know, or deliberately, for whatever reason, you felt justified and not, I, I just can't, I don't have the bandwidth to incorporate this into my consciousness right now because I'm too busy doing this or too busy doing that. You know, you just see how life kind of stacks this stuff up on you and the things that kind of bounce off of your perception uh, a lot of them are things that given enough uh, bandwidth you would not have wanted to bounce off you would have wanted to incorporate but you didn't for whatever reason and you become aware that that's on you as an individual to some degree or another. I mean, there's a lot of other aspects to it, but there is a personal uh, moment also to all of this. So part yeah, of the I impact is kind of a realization that you were kind of uh, numbed against some of this reality, you know, that you, for whatever reason, you just kind of chose not to perceive it, you know, something. Well, and it sort of tells me that there is a certain pattern to life that you participate in that it isn't really that you went out to to be anesthetized but it does no, but life does up, that to you but it does do that to you yeah. so you get in a pattern of I commute into work, I go to work, I commute out of work, then I'm too tired to do much else, and then I, um, on the weekends, I, I try to... give myself a couple of hours in the evening to just kind of numb out in front of the TV before I go to bed. Right. I give that to myself as a gift, and, you know, you realize that that's 24 hours, it's gone. Yeah. And there was no time in there for doing any of the things that now that there's COVID-19 and everything is shut down, we have a moment to reflect. And things are a lot of things that have kind of been trailing behind us in the in the dim and dusty distance have been had time to catch up to us. And we've kind of went, oh crap! Look what I haven't been I haven't had time to see, you know. Um, so I think that's a kind of a, 
I think there's at least a, I don't know if it's a global reckoning, but I think societally in the United States there is a reckoning of that kind happening in a lot of people's consciousness that they're, they've been stopped to the degree that some of this stuff is catching up. Well, one of the observations I made to my brother that he wholeheartedly agreed with is that we're really seeing the shadow side of America right now. Yeah. And uh, as Americans, I think we always like to look on the bright side, but we definitely have right. a shadow when I, side. You know, when I see something like what I saw in the in that uh, vanishing Seattle thing about the about the the Seattle Policeman's Fund being being corporate sponsored like Starbucks very big this was advertising of Mars that they were doing at the 16 different Starbucks locations in downtown Seattle 16 Starbucks in just in downtown Seattle and they were going to march from one to another uh, protesting the fact that these private corporations were funding the, the police and a lot of them were large real estate holders so that the police really were protecting property more than they were protecting people yeah and that was kind of the point of, that they were making. And, you know, even something like that, you realize that, those, that that fund was probably initiated for lots of good reasons and that there's nothing wrong with the police protecting property. It's just a question when it, those proportions get skewed. When, you, when, when you're in the midst of a, a peaceful protest and the police are, are, and some radicals come in and start trashing property and the police go after everybody, because the property is being damaged and that's the trigger point yeah. that's when people are kind of saying wait a minute you know yeah and it's the same phenomenon when it's go back to work and damn the torpedoes with against covid-19 you know it's like we're going kids are going to go back to school or we're going to cut off your funding really what if there's no plan for doing it safely yeah you know it's like every community is different, and you know, and it has to do with socioeconomics. It has to do with a much bigger socioeconomic picture. So you can't just mandate these things. You can't. It's not right. It's not humane, and it, in a lot of ways, it's you know, it's like it's mercenary. So there's just layer upon layer of, of not only uh, factors of truth but history behind these things. And the, the way the, the Seattle Policeman's Guild Fund, or whatever it's called, evolved over the last 35, 40 years is one of those stories where things have gotten out of hand on one level or another, and now it needs to be dialed back. Well, and also another part of my conversation with my brother that really interested me is because Gary has recently been in a circumstance where he is now retired and I was thinking uh, he he said you know it's really weird because people when they first meet you they always want to know what you do that's their only interest and even if you say I'm retired then they want to know what you did you know they can't really connect just with your passion in life or, what, with the, or with what you, you were, as a person that's standing in front of them right yeah, now. Exactly. This yeah, exactly. And this is one of the things that I thought Gary definitely and I definitely came up with together in our youth is that we never really cared about what people did. We were more interested in what their passions were. You know, what, yeah. what are you reading? What are you listening to? What are the things that really involve you? And, of course, your job can be that. 
And for a lot of people, that is. Yeah. It is that. But, but a lot of people, it isn't. But for, because I was saying, you know, I've always, I've always said I love my job, and I do love my job because I love the the compl- complex problem solving that my job provides me, and I love being paid for it. And I said, but it isn't, you know, like when I moved from the law firm to whatever, you know, I don't really feel like it has provided me a passion. It's more that I have an organizational skill that can be transferred to a bunch of different places. And I'll always like whatever I do in the organizational field. I like working for the University of Washington because I like their their goals and their motives, you know. But certainly when I retire, I will want to, as I would now, like for people to talk to me about what I'm passionate about. And a lot of my passion is about the music I listen to, the poetry I hear, the, uh, the mythology that saturates my life. You know, I, those are the things that I really come alive talking about. My job has always been... Uh, just my way of surviving in the world and we all have have to survive somehow and uh i i enjoy the parts of my job that use my talents but but anyway it was very interesting to talk to gary and and to consider how much of our worldview we grew up informing each other and uh bolstering each other's opinions i think so, and especially because Gary was the one who first introduced me to Kurt Vonnegut as well. So he had been very interested in the fact that I'm delving into Kurt Vonnegut again. And it's been a while since he's read Kurt Vonnegut too. So, although I remember him giving me not that long, well, it's probably, yeah, it's probably been a long, it's probably been 20 years ago. I remember him giving me, um, Welcome to the Monkey House, or something like that, for one yeah. of my birthdays. So. I don't know that I've ever read that one. Great title. Yes. <laughs> yes. Welcome to the Monkey House. It is, a great title. <laughs> is that a novel or is that a collection? Of... I thought it was a collection of short yeah, stories. Yeah. yeah. So. So music. Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. By Paul Simon, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel. Very God, good. I'm glad you. Glad you were able to dredge that uh, <laughs> that neuron out of your out of the gray matter. Pardon me, I'm having a drink of coffee. That was deeply in the archives, though. I mean, that's back oh there. That's what I was you boy. Saying God. it to the good coffee. It's old. <laughs> I was thinking. I was thinking. You remember that song, One Tin Soldier? Mm-hmm. Go ahead and hang your name. Yes, I remember it well. Go ahead and cheat a friend. <laughs> Do it in the name of heaven. It will justify it in the end. Yeah, I was thinking about that song because I was thinking maybe we should maybe we should do some some kind of consciousness raising songs from our very early youth because I remember there was a few that would be one yeah. that I used to listen to over and over again just because I thought it was wow wow look what this song is doing. You know, it was like, look, this song is, is like a call to arms. It's like a, a, you know, you know, it was an early version of like, we, uh, well, we shall overcome kind of, or, uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, 
yeah, some other <laughs> that's kind of thing. <laughs> but it was just a, it was a rallying song or something like that, and I thought, but it was new. It was new. It wasn't. It didn't sound old. It was new. Anyway. So. Well, anyway. these are old records. These are old records. These are old records. But listening back to the song "Cloudy," it's uh, you know it's not a zippity doo die yippy skippy you know. No. It's, not, it's not feeling groovy. No. It's a different kind of song. It's got it's it's uh, it's good. So I think that you well, picked a. I probably have already uh, informed everyone about the existence of this album in my life. Um, my aunt and This uncle, was your first Simon and Garfunkel? First Simon and Garfunkel, okay. given to my brother for his birthday because uh, my aunt and uncle asked my cousins what they should get. Oh, that's what they, came from your aunt and uncle? Yeah, wow. came from my aunt and uncle. Wow. Um, and... Gary, Gary and I, of course, shared all albums that we had because that's what you did, yeah. man. You yeah, know, man. yeah, man. And up until that point, we had not. We thought this was heavy rock, you know, because we had not listened to anything outside of classical and musicals. Yeah. Um, so for us, it was just like a walk on the wild side. Oh man. <laughs> Like the Velvet Underground or the Ramones or something <laughs> yeah. like that. You know? yeah. But I absolutely loved the album. Gary absolutely loved the album. Gary got so involved in um, learning Simon and Garfunkel songs. We mm. sang a lot of them together and did harmonies uh, as best as we could make out from yeah. the records and um simon and garfunkel and judy collins were two of our faves for um for harmonizing with and and singing together on and i just that period of time was just such a blast i'm sure you felt that way with your sis too there's just something so wonderful about having an in-house person that you can just sing and play around with and, and just be like oh my god i know this is so good and gary was gary was a great guitarist and he always could pick out anything he he'd always be able to figure it out just like you you know yeah. he'd figure out what the well you'd the, figure out a version a version an acceptable version yeah. It, you know, yeah but cloudy ended up to be a song that I always thought described me in a way. I mean, I thought that back then. I think it now. I when we listened to it this morning, I actually got teary-eyed because of the, the, somewhat the innocence and yeah. and there's um, a quaintness sweetness. to the to the production of the yeah. song. That is, that's the part that tugs at you. Is just the kind of, uh, I don't know what it is. There's a, a innocence to the production. That at the time might have seemed kind of almost over the top, but it's actually just, I don't know, it just represents a time. I mean, I always think about the, the version done by the Seekers of that song, which is even more steeped in kind of musical and or popular music tropes of that time, which was the 12-string guitar in a certain kind of a, uh, you know, it just there was just this whole collection of kind of... Um, not, I don't want to say cliches, but they became kind of emblematic of a particular moment in popular music that was the kind of the folk, acoustic folk uh, stuff that Simon and Garfunkel and the Seekers kind of represented at that period of the 60s. So. 
Well, the the line that I always related to was, my thoughts echo and they swell from Tolstoy to Tinkerbell. I, because that is the way my mind goes. Uh, I do think about Tolstoy and I do think about Tinkerbell. And, you know, I've always been a person that has this sort of wide-eyed wonder about the world that a child has, but I also like to delve deeply into philosophies, you know, that, so I always related to that and uh, really kind of latched on that song. Think about that song throughout, I've thought about it throughout my life. I think about it sometimes when I'm on a walk, you know, because I'm thinking about so many different things. You know, my mind is, I love that, they echo and they swell from Tolstoy, because that to me is the way my thoughts run. It's just like all these different thoughts. My thoughts are scattered and they're cloudy. And I feel like, man, for a, a young man to have those thoughts, well, I guess I had them back then because. But when you couldn't. I listened, I, but Paul was able to articulate them in a way that was melodic and you know, and, and make it into a thing that everybody could attach to. That's yeah. that was his gift, or is and his I gift as being able definitely to attached to it. And to think about that record and relate it to all the other records that he's done throughout my lifetime, throughout his lifetime. And think about the the additional complexities and how things had expanded. It really is quite a, a illustration of your own journey to to listen to him as he became the incredible poet songwriter that he always was in to the nth degree. Yep. You know. Yep. But the other song that we have chosen was a very important song to me, and you, you had asked... <laughs> don't hit the pillow. It makes me nervous when you put your hand down there, because I don't want you to hit the pillow. Okay, it'll I'm, I'm not even near the pillow. Yeah, you're near, little, you're very near the pillow. I'm when here. you're doing that, you're like an inch away from the pillow. <laughs> it's, very, it's very, you know, don't mess up the whole feng shui of the, <laughs> of the recording apparatus. Wait, is that on? Oh, yeah. Anyway, yes. You said when I said that that was the 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 formative record that I would choose for today because it was my turn. Right. You said as long as we could do the dangling conversation. Yes. And I said, of course. I mean, Just that would I be think... been a choice of mine anyway, without your intervention. Yeah. Uh, that is an amazing song. It is an amazing that song. Is, that is a great piece of songcraft. Uh, especially for somebody who's in his early 20s, I would say. And I always have this memory that is installed in my head of sitting out on the back porch, and I think my brother must have recorded it on a tape deck or something, because we were out on the... uh, It wasn't a porch, it was just an area of patio. And Bill is very uh, <laughs> impatient with my trying I'm to. I'm just hearing the edit with. points. I'm just listening to the edit points. <laughs> Go ahead. You gotta rein it back in so you can finish the sentence. Patio. Good God, woman. <laughs> Patio. 
We were playing, Gary and I wanted to play some of this Simon and Garfunkel for my mom and dad. And, and they were not that interested until they, we got to the dangling conversation and then they started both to weep. And we were, uh, we just thought it was a beautiful song. We didn't really (laughs) think of it as any impactful thing for us other than being a beautifully written song and beautiful melody and all that. And so I've often thought about that through the years, about my parents weeping during that song. It's got a a, uh, pan-generational appeal to it, I think. It's, you know... It's one of those songs that can mean one thing to you in your youth and something else in your midlife and something else in your older age. And, you know, it's something that attaches to each individual's own experience and story in a way that so that it repeats at different stages of your life in an interesting way. All righty then. The first wild rock record we ever owned. Yeah. Yeah, you better back away from the speakers, because boy, this is gonna, it's gonna blow your ears off here, people. Some heavy metal from the youth of Diane Schultz's dad. in my pocket and a lot of time to kill hey sunshine i haven't seen you in a long time why don't you show your face and bend my mind these clouds stick to the sky like a floating question they linger there to die They don't know where they're going And my friend, neither do I Cloudy 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 It's a still life watercolor Of a now late afternoon 
As the sun shines through the curtain lace And shadows wash the room And we sit and drink our coffee Couched in our indifference Like shells upon the shore You can hear the ocean roar In the dangling conversation And the superficial sighs The borders of our lives And you read your Emily Dickinson And I my Robert Frost And we note our place with bookmarkers That measure what we've lost Like a poem poorly written We are verses out of rhythm Couplets out of rhyme In syncopated time And the dangling conversation And the superficial signs Are the words of our lives Yes, we speak of things that matter With words that must be said Can analysis be worthwhile? Is the theater really dead? And how the room is softly faded And I only kiss your shadow I cannot feel your hand You're a stranger now unto me Lost in the dangling conversation And the superficial signs In the borders of our lives